Tonight we are going to take a photograph of everybody after this session. So uh, we'll see if it's uh, there's a lot of questions. So if I don't finish them all, uh, we can always carry on with the questions tomorrow night. When I did breath meditation, I saw my it's hard to write. It looks like saw my own eye and the side features of my face, and sometimes my nose gets wet and I feel very hot. Why is that? Can you please explain? Well, when we meditate on the breath, we're bringing our attention inwards. Uh, not only do we become more aware of the breath, but we become more aware of the body as a whole and so sometimes certain aspects or parts of the body become more clear as the mind calms down as it focuses on the breath so we sometimes sense the facial features or some people it's the top of the head sometimes it's the, the nose sometimes it's chest, back, it can be different parts of the body and it's just mindfulness of the body, the breath is part of the body. We can contemplate uh, on from that if we want, the different body parts, how they're made up of the four elements solid parts are the earth element, liquid parts are the water element, the air element, so the air we're following, the feeling of the air going in and out of the body, that's the air element, and the temperature in the body and the changes are the fire element, or air element of temperature, hot and cold sensations and then we can reflect on that these four elements and the parts of the body that we are noticing and contemplating we say are not self they're just elements without an owner, without a self so you might notice your skin or notice say your nose gets wet as the skin of your nose, the flesh the wetness, say, of mucus or sweat, but there's no person or being in any of these. It's not a person, a being, me, myself, you. It's just elements. The mind is that which knows, and the mind can knows the, know these four elements, can be aware of them, and it can understand these elements are not self. So if that is clear 
in the mind, there's a sense of just witnessing the body or knowing the body or these different parts, but without grasping at them, taking them as self. So then there's a sense of, could, in a sense you could say, could be anybody's body, my body, their body, because there's the sense of ownership and identification disappears when we contemplate like this. Temperature changes often occur when we meditate. Um, the body is adjusting itself as it calms down you become mindful of the body. Um, to warm up is quite common. Uh, we're putting our own energy back into the body, directing our attention, the attention of the mind to the body, and that can heat it up. Some people feel very cool, very cold when they're meditating, but probably heat is more common. But either way, we just contemplate, these are just changes in the body elements. Uh, shouldn't be anything to concern yourself about, just use them as a way to contemplate the body and see, oh, this is, these are the four elements. These elements are not a being, not a person. They're just part of nature. How do I know whether I am thinking or investigating insight object during the insight meditation? During cleaning the toilet and helping the kitchen, which meditation is better? How often can I change the insight object? How do I know to change it? Well, the first aspect of meditation, as we explained before, just developing the ability to be mindful of an object, a meditation object. So it could be the breath, or mindful of the Buddha, or mindful of the thought of loving kindness, so on. And learning to keep mindful of the object. And when there's continuous mindfulness, one is continuously knowing that object, the mind is not wandering off, daydreaming, falling asleep, whatever. When there's continuous mindfulness, we say this is samadhi, and the mind feels more calm, stable. When samadhi arises, even if it's only for a short period, the mind is more in a more suitable state, more ready to contemplate, to develop insight. So one turns the mind, instead of being mindful of the object, one's mindfulness turns to be mindful of one of the three characteristics of our experience. So we can be mindful of impermanence, mindful of dukkha, stress, suffering, mindful of not-self, the lack of self in the object. 
what object one takes may be just whatever object presents itself. So if you've made your mind calm and you're coming out of that state, meaning withdrawing from the one-pointed, the object that you've been mindful of, and you start to see or hear or a thought arises or a sensation comes up, you might be just witnessing, observing the impermanence of that sensation, the sight, the sound, the taste. Noticing it arises and passes away from your consciousness, your awareness. Without that leading on to any mental proliferation, distracted thinking in the normal way. So for instance, you might be meditating, you've made your mind develop some good mindfulness, some strong mindfulness. And then you're developing insight into impermanence. So you see, you open your eyes and you see something. You see a Buddha statue if you're looking this way, or flowers. And you can be aware just of seeing color, shapes. You may be aware of the perception that comes up. There's a statue of a Buddha, there's a flower. And then you just let go. You're just knowing that's the seeing consciousness arising and passing away. Maybe it keeps arising, passing away. You keep looking, keep seeing. You're aware of the in impermanence of that experience. And maybe you go on to listen to something or you close your eyes again and think of something. Whatever the uh, sense impression is coming up, you can just observe rising, passing away. Rather than it leading on to a lot of mental proliferation, you know, what is that statue, where has it come from, who made it, these flowers, they, I like the flowers, I don't like the flowers, you know, all the story and the discussion, the chatter. When mindfulness is strong, we're letting that go, we're just allowing sensations, whether they're internal, memories, thoughts, external, sight, sound, taste, arise and pass away. That's the most basic kind of insight. We can also bring up a certain object to contemplate. So all our teachers recommend to begin with the body, your own physical body. Contemplate. One thing you can contemplate is the senses of this body, so the eyes, ears, uh, and their objects, but also the body itself as an object, this body, how it's subject to impermanence, change, on many la layers. You know, we know the body partly through feelings and sensations, and they're changing all the time. We have pleasure, we have pain, we feel hungry, we feel full, we feel awake, we feel uh, energetic, we feel tired. Um, the body is changing and you're contemplating that again, directing your mind to the body, observing feelings, sensations, can be the look of the body. So your mind is just focusing maybe on one part of the body and you're just looking at one part of the body. You're starting to notice it or witness it in more detail than before, more clearly than before. You might begin you know, the, the very first meditation 
object the Buddha gives to a Buddhist monk when they ordain, said hair of the head, they contemplate hair of the head. Because you're mindful, you just turn your attention to the hair of the head. You might, with your eyes closed, visualize it. What does the hair look like? Maybe pick one individual hair and look at it. And you start to get to know things about that one single hair. You can direct, in the beginning you have to direct the mind, so you use memory, you use thought, but because you're mindful, this isn't leading on to a lot of distracted or strayed thinking. You're just directing your mind to contemplate, consider one hair, hair of your head. This is just an example, it could be any part of the body. Where is that hair coming from? It's coming out of the skin all the time. You have hair follicles, you have pores, spaces in the skin where hair grows out, comes out from the blood. It's, it's like extra cells, uh, protein cells and so on coming out of the blood. So you can consider you know, where it comes from. It's actually coming from something not very pleasant. You know, we only th normally uh, look at hair as something pleasant, beautiful. We shape it and colour it and wash it, style it. But an individual hair is actually coming out of blood. Not very nice. It grows. You know, every day our hair grows, 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 grows. Eventually we either cut it or it drops out. Over time hair changes colour, changes its appearance, gets greasy, we wash it, it gets greasy again can dry out, can turn grey, can just drop out, you can go bald. Sometimes people think only men go bald, but many ladies go bald, especially when they worry a lot. They have hair dropping out. Even uh, just on a daily basis, your hair drops out, doesn't it? You watch it as you bathe, your hair is dropping out. All of that is contemplating hair just thinking about it, considering it, but because you're mindful, your mind is not straying into, you know, thinking about hair for two seconds and then off to uh, think about something else completely unrelated. Just staying with hair, visualizing it, considering it. In the beginning, you lead that meditation, contemplating the impermanence of hair changeable nature. You can go back to say, well, hair, what is hair coming from? It's coming from the bud. It's coming from uh, the four elements. These four elements are changing all the time. You know, we eat food and, and, and drink things, drink liquid. It goes into the body, goes into the bloodstream. The blood goes up and the hair starts growing. So it's just changing nature of four elements. You take a hair out of your head, put it on the ground, immediately you consider it not self. You no longer think, my hair, I've got to keep it. You just let it go, don't you? It's not self when it's on the ground. Why, when it's on the head, do we grasp at it so much and make so much fuss about it and attach to it so much? So one hair can teach us a lot. If you keep focusing on the hair, many times you become mindful of your hair, you consider it, and if it grabs your attention, it's something you find easy to hold your attention, then you can learn a lot. 
then you can just be contemplating and seeing impermanence, seeing the hair as the four elements, changing, not self, regularly. That kind of insight can stick with you and you see it in other people's hair and in um, yourself. Over time, you might develop a sense that this hair is just part of nature. It's not really me, mine, myself. If you keep doing that through the whole body, eventually you might get to the sense that this body is not me, mine, myself. It's just part of nature. It's almost like some kind of separate puppet or doll moving around. You know, we move around, we do things, but the sense of ownership of the body is, is changing. That might happen. You might have an insight like that. We have this great separation between the mind and the body. It's very clear and the body seems like something that's not really you. We say you just borrowed the body and the four elements that make up this body. We just borrow them temporarily while we're in this world. So when you clean a toilet or a kitchen, you can contemplate these same things, either internally, your own body, or externally, contemplate the dirt in a toilet. It's all come from human bodies. Their excrement, urine, hairs, and so on. Just contemplate, oh, it's the body, it's impermanent unattractive, this is the unattractive side. You're helping in the kitchen, you can say, well, we need to keep a body going, we need to eat food, the food is the four elements, take it, people take it in. Obviously you want to try and make the food taste good and be healthy, nutritious food, but you're going deeper as you contemplate, maybe contemplate even the impermanence of food. You cook it up, you eat it, you pull it out. It's a cycle every day. You're just going a little bit deeper into the whole nature of food, the body, toilets, so on. So there's many meditations you can do. You might just keep one object in mind. It's like when you're cleaning a toilet or cleaning a kitchen, it's a fairly simple task, maybe you're wiping, you're sweeping, you're doing simple tasks, you might just keep one object in mind as you're doing that. So maybe a word, you're reciting butto, butto as you clean. If you're doing a lot of breath meditation, you can even keep with your breath as you're cleaning or you're chopping food or you're sweeping the floor. Or you might be creative, just have your own particular meditation object which helps to be, keep mindful and even gives you some insight. So you might just say uh, impermanence, say, for example. Oh, it's impermanent, it's impermanent. You clean the floor, it's impermanent. You clean it this morning, by lunchtime, oh, it's dirty again, impermanent. Go back and clean it again by evening, oh, it's impermanent, dirty again. Impermanent, you just keep going impermanent, impermanent, and you're seeing impermanence in everything around you. That would be an example. Um, so you can experiment a bit, you can change your insight object from time to time, but uh, don't jump around too much because that'll tend to bring up more mental proliferation and agitation, I think.
I know of one monk who, before he was a monk, he was a farmer, and Lumpur Man taught him to use the contemplation or use the object Buddha, and in, just as I was describing, recite Buddha all the time as he did his farm work, his house chores, and then contemplate uh, the impermanence of these four elements, the impermanence of this body, your house, your possessions, very simple techniques. Uh, and Lumpur Man said, contemplate to the point where you can just constantly see yourself as like a skeleton, like a corpse. So obviously he had to do that often, you know, all the time he was meditating as he did his farm work. And they say before he even became a monk, he was already a sodapanna. He'd already let go of the normal identification with, with body and mind, the self, and just saw body as just four elements. And that insight was very, very strong for him. That's before he even ordained. Grab Namatsakan Tanajan. Vela Tini. มีสมาธิที่สมาธิแล้วจิตมีความสงบอยู่นานๆอ่านยากหน่อยนายเวลานี้เราควรจะใช้การพิจารณาสติปัฏฐานสี่ <coughs> ได้เลยมั้ยหรือว่าควรให้จิตมีสมาธิมากๆหรือคันสูงแล้วจึงจะพิจารณาอยากจะให้อาจารย์ช่วยสรุปโดยย่อว่าสติปัฏฐานสี
society, your samadhi, your calm is not strong enough and you have to go back and develop more calm. That's probably the best uh, practical way to develop both samadhi and insight. You alternate. Looking at the big picture, your aim is to train yourself so that you can bring your mind to one-pointedness every day. So you can get beyond the hindrances every day. Then your ability to contemplate, develop insight will be very good because you'll be able to maintain mindfulness when you're um, you turn to contemplate the four foundations of mindfulness, these different objects, you'll be able to sustain mindfulness because your samadhi is firm. But until you've reached that point where you have to be back and forth, you use the contemplation to help develop the samadhi and the samadhi to develop the contemplation. When you do contemplate, you contemplate as we've been teaching, begin with the body because it's the most obvious thing for us. You can see it, you can feel it. You can run through the body parts, the four elements. You can concentrate on the breath and just contemplate the breath itself. That's part of the body. Breath is very impermanent. Breathe in, breathe out. You don't breathe in again, you die. That's impermanence. Breath is not self you don't own this air that you're breathing in, do you? Nobody can really own the air. It's an element that comes into the body, goes around the body through the blood, through that comes into the lungs, goes around through the blood. But it's not really a self or a being, a person. So the breath, you can start there, your beginning of your foundation of mindfulness, contemplate the body, the breath. Out of that we also become more aware of feelings, the second foundation. We become aware of pleasure and pain and their impermanent nature. Pleasure comes and goes, pain comes and goes. So we contemplate the rising and passing away of feeling and the lack of a self in feeling. You contemplate this feeling is not me, mine, myself, it's not a person, a being, it's just feeling. Feeling that arises into consciousness according to its conditions, its causes, then it passes away. But there's no being or self in that. Uh, You can contemplate the mind itself, the third foundation of mindfulness. Traditionally you're noting the mind with kilesa, so when there's greed in the mind, you note that, what it's like. You're aware this is greed. When there's no greed, you're aware of that. When there's anger, ill will, you're aware of that. When there's no ill will, you're aware of that. When there's delusion, you're aware of that. When there's no delusion, you're aware of that. So it's a very refined practice, not an easy thing for a beginner, but we can do it. We can start becoming aware of our mental states and the mind, the mind with defilement, the mind free from defilement, But to all of that, you apply the insight, and this is not me, mine, myself. This is not a being, a person. This is just a mind with a defilement or without a defilement, with greed, without, with anger or without. And you'll notice there are times in your day when you're not angry, you're not greedy, you're not deluded, you're just mindfully aware. And those qualities have gone. 
And it, the more you become familiar with that, the more that helps you to develop your practice. Because, you know, if we're used to a lot of uh, confused mind states, agitated mind states, the one way to help you get out of that is to at least notice the times when you don't have a confused mind state, when you feel calm, free from stress, free from a lot of worry, free from anger, free from greed. If you notice those times, your mind will incline to those mind states more. It'll appreciate them more. The mind will probably prefer to be with non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion more than the opposite. And sometimes the mind just gets so used to stressful thinking that it, you know, it forgets that there's any alternative. We get used to being angry or negative or depressed. We get used to always wanting things, seeking things with greed, with attraction. We get used to confusion, murkiness, dullness. And many of you have been talking about the problems with sleepiness. Largely that's habit. The mind is habitually going to sleepiness. When you meditate, when you go to sleep at night, there's a dullness there that we just get so used to going to the dullness that you know it's hard to bring your mind back out of that. So if you become more familiar at least with the mind that is not dull, not sleepy, and you really get familiar with that, that will help your mind to incline back towards that state, away from the dullness. But it's all the third foundation of mindfulness, contemplating the mind it's like a vessel, it's like a container and you know, sometimes it's got one thing in it and sometimes it's got another thing in it. Our moods change, the quality of the mind, the mental states change and you're noticing this but you're also noticing the vessel itself, the container. The last one is the sort of the widest of the foundations of mindfulness so it's the hardest in a sense, the most refined because it's everything, <laughs> Dhamma everything, all objects that can be known by the mind, physical, mental, good, bad, wholesome, unwholesome. But often we're learning through contemplating Dhamma, you're seeing how do uh, defilements arise, how does greed, anger arise, it arises through a process of conditioning. You have I, you see a form, something you don't like for instance, you have a perception arise, I don't like this, say it's a person walking towards you. You consider them an enemy or someone you don't like in your memory. The memory comes up, so you have an unpleasant feeling seeing this person walking towards you. And then you start thinking with craving, I don't like this person, why are they here? And all this sort of stuff comes up. If that's happening often, it becomes an attachment, a habit, a fixed habit of mine. It becomes a very strong attachment. That person is my enemy. Every time I see them, I feel unpleasant feelings, feel tense, feel anger, feel this and that, and think a lot of thoughts based on it. It's an attachment. It can even become, we say, becoming, bawa, meaning that becomes the level of the mind always going, in this case, to anger, to negativity, becomes just so fixed, that's the way you are, always angry or depressed or whatever. That's just one example, there are many other examples you could draw on. 
So when we say it's becoming, if you were to die, they say, if you were to die with that fixed attachment, always angry and especially directed towards a certain person maybe, if you were to die, then that, that karma would go with you into your next life. And it becomes part of your character, always getting angry, and particularly with this person or this situation, it's always making you angry. It becomes very fixed and part of you, a habit. But when you're contemplating Dhamma, you're contemplating seeing that process, how it's happening, what's happening here. You're looking more deeply. And you start, obviously, to see, well, this is suffering. And this is how suffering is arising. How can I change this? If I bring up mindfulness and wisdom at that moment, maybe I can let go of my negative thought on seeing that person walking towards me. I know the sight of that person. I can sense the... Uh, the memory and the perception that it's someone I don't like, but then I let that go there with mindfulness and insight. You know, oh, it's just a sight, just a memory. Even if a feeling arises, it's just a feeling, unpleasant feeling, but you don't grasp at it, you let it go right there. That might be an example of practicing the, the uh, foundation of mindfulness, dhamma, what we call dhamma nupasana, satipatthana contemplating Dhamma and particularly to let go of suffering, see how suffering arises how can you let go of it, how can you establish mindfulness, let go of suffering in different situations it's a very wide topic but that's just an example leave that oh, another one in Thai a long one. See how we go. One in English first. Do you have any book about Ajahn Blian's life story in English? Please let us know. I uh, don't think his life story in English has come out yet, but we do have a few books we've given away before some of his teachings. I think all the free distribution books have gone now. We just have one or two in the library. Um, what you need to do is go and visit Ajahn Plian. And you can ask him questions. And you may, he has books there to give away as well. But um, I don't think he yet has a translated biography. So that's my recommendation. Visit, visit him. He's very old now, so you want to visit him before he dies. Otherwise you might regret it. Mischance. Ajahn, in retreats, I always have disturbed sleep. I am half awake, lots of dreams, etc. It's as if night time is the only time for the mind to do what it wants, as it is being restrained during the day. Is this normal, as I was always led to believe meditators experience good sleep? Yes, it is very normal, especially in the beginning of meditation, to have uh, changes in your sleep patterns and dreams and experiences of being half awake, half asleep, because you're improving your mindfulness a little bit, but it's not yet firm. So... That's partly why we get more dreams. We're more aware of the mind 
the subconscious stuff coming up. We're much more aware of it than normal. Normally we're just thinking so much, so busy, so involved with things that you know we don't see a lot of what's in our mind. But when you come to a quiet place and you do a lot of meditation, you're much clearer in what's up, happening in your mind. So some of it you're just seeing during your meditation. Some of it is coming up when you're sleeping. So sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night, have a dream, or just thinking about something, or have images come up, very, very common. Also, partly it's because you're not eating in the evening, so in the night time your mind is freer from the body, because the body, when it eats and digests, becomes very heavy, and uses a lot of energy, which kind of drags the mind down. So you'll see after your big midday meal, often you have sleepiness very badly then. In the night time, the mind is freed from that burden. And the energy of the body is, is lighter. So it's actually a good time to meditate. But out of habit, you have to work with your sleepiness because night time is often when we're asleep. But you'll find often you get some good insights and sometimes it comes out in dreams and things as well during the middle of the night. So many meditators, you know, they sleep less at night. They maybe go to sleep uh, 10 or 11, get up 2 or 3, just have a few hours sleep and then carry on meditating and they find that quite a good routine. But you have to find for yourself and you have to give yourself time Often a retreat is very short, so you know, you're just getting into it and then you have to go home. <laughs> so ideally try and keep up a regular meditation practice. And you'll probably find over time as your mind settles down, you're experiencing more peace, more happiness. Well, your sleep will improve. You'll have um, good sleep, as they say. Um, but you still might have a few dreams here and there, but they probably won't bother you because your mind is peaceful enough or have a dream and then you just go to sleep. If you're really bothered by uh, agitated mental states when you're trying to sleep, the Buddha recommended doing a lot of metta practice before you go to sleep develop the thought of goodwill, the feeling of goodwill towards oneself and then to others as a regular thing before you go to sleep. This will help you to sleep, have a more peaceful sleep. Do you have any suggestions on how to teach meditation to a group of children aged six to 10 years old? Yes, you need much patience and you need much loving kindness, tolerance. You have to be sincere. If you're not sincere, don't bother. Ask someone else to do it. If you're ready, you're, you have the patience and sincerity, you really want to help the kids, then it's a very good thing to do because kids are kids are young and it's a good time to learn something about Buddhism and Buddhist meditation where they're fresh and they, from my experience, you know, even young kids appreciate it. But they obviously find it difficult and that's where you need patience because they're restless and they need to, you need to find skillful ways to hold their attention, explain to them what to do, 
talk about why it's helpful to us, what the benefits are, and so on. Um, but the ones I found, usually the kids respond well to uh, loving-kindness meditation, and that's very useful for them. They become a little bit less uh, aggressive and agitated, and they can have you know, like we just said, kid, many kids have nightmares and then you get them to practice meditation, either breathing meditation or loving-kindness meditation, the nightmares go, and so on. It can have a very good effect on them. What is the best way to respond to a partner husband or wife, when he or she is constantly communicating to the other in a negative, agitated, belittling way. He's choosing to remain in a relationship because you have children together, an unwholesome thing to do. Uh, not necessarily, because obviously once you have children, they're your biggest responsibility, I'd say, you know, it's the karma of children. Once you bring children into the world, you can't neglect them. That would be bad karma. Uh, unless there was some really uh, important reason. But normally, your children are your number one priority because you brought them into the world. You have to look after them until they're old enough to look after themselves. You want to look after them with material things, with love and kindness, and even dhamma bring them to the Dhamma. So that's your priority. Um, and how that fits with your relationship, you just have to consider uh, if you can manage to keep uh, a reasonable relationship going with your partner so that there's a good environment for the kids. That would be ideal. What is not so good is if you're constantly fighting, you know, husband and wife are fighting with the kids there as well. You know, ideally you don't want that because then they get a lot of suffering from seeing that, witnessing it. Uh, they might copy and follow that and so on and so on. There's a lot of you know, associated suffering with, with, uh, with that. So the best thing is if you marry, you know, you or have a partner, you give it the best go that you can, the best shot you can. Try to learn to be as patient as you can, tolerant, kind as you can, understanding as you can. If one partner is uh, very negative and has uh, negative behaviour towards the other, well, try to see if there's any way to improve things through skillful communication, discussing it. Sometimes if we can't do it ourselves, we can go to a third party, like a marriage counsellor or somebody, a therapist, who may be able to help to improve things. Um, depends on how serious the situation is. Uh, you'll never get it perfect no such thing as perfect relationship. There'll always be some uh, misunderstandings, negativity and so on, but one hopes it's on a small level, a manageable level, and then one uses a lot of patience, loving kindness, um, 
but if it's getting serious, or certainly if it was involving sort of violent abuse, then you have to sort it out. So get help from a third party. Um, if it's really uh, impossible, well, sometimes people have to accept that and, and it's more peaceful to separate. It just depends on the situation. If there's a person you're living with and they really are giving you a lot of negativity, try to work on your own mind, developing the loving kindness meditation uh, to counter your own anger, because you're bound to get angry. If someone's angry to you, you'll get angry. So you have to work on that through your own meditation. Develop karuna, compassion. Understand maybe there's reasons for their negativity. They haven't seen what they're doing maybe and there's other issues in their life that are bringing up this negativity and it's coming out with you so try to be compassionate understand them better see if there's any way you can get them to um, see themselves know themselves talk to them and so on and to carry on doing your meditation and uh, be very very patient with it with the situation These are only sort of general comments I can give at this point. Oh, looks like somebody's written an essay. Uh, hmm. Kindly explain, why do we share merit with the Lord of Death? How can he or she help us? Who is this Lord? Well, it's symbolic. It's the devas that look after us when we die and sort out, you know, Yamabala and the people who judge us, you know, do the karmic accounting, what you did, good, bad, get the book out, weigh it up. Mm. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a lot of literature about this in the good old days. They'd draw paintings of it on the sides of Ubozada halls, meditation halls, or they have books about it. Nowadays, they have movies about it. You know, these devas, these angels, are checking out your karma and sorry, down you go. <laughs> okay, we can pull you up this time. Uh, it's just the recognition that there are other beings in other realms and those beings affect us and they perform duties and the Buddha encouraged us to share merits with all beings in all realms and in particular when we share merits with deities, devas, angels um, they tend to protect us and look after us if we're trying to do good out of compassion and kindness they'll try to encourage us and protect us as we're doing good uh, this seems to be one of those sort of unseen laws of the universe difficult to explain and prove but the more you meditate the more you sense that this is true and occasionally people meditate and see them and they're sure that they're not being deluded you know, people who are mindful enough, wise enough to know they're not being deluded and then they say, oh, 
devas do exist. There are devas, different realms. There's what we call nagas, there's dragons, there's deities who are in different heaven realms. Deities even look after hell realms and other ghost realms. So there's many deities around and it's just the recognition that they're there, sharing the merits with them, wishing them well. Um, maybe that can have a good, leave a good impression. You know, when you're, say, you know, you're traveling to another country, uh, say you want to go back to Sri Lanka or Thailand or go somewhere, when you go through passport control, you know, if you go through with metta and goodwill, then you look at your passport, fine, please have a good trip, and they send you on your way. Um, if you go through, so, uh, I hate everyone. <laughs> um, maybe they'll find something wrong to stop and say, hold on, because you're, you know, say if you're being very rude or gruff with them or short-tempered. <laughs> so that might be a simile, you know. When you're going into the next life, you want to have a mind of metta and be one who shares merits with all beings. So you meet the Lord of Death, wish them well, then they'll probably wish you well and they'll help you out. Um, but these, these are the deities that uh, we have in the universe, many, many deities performing different duties, different levels of the heaven realms. You can read the books on the cosmology or you can meditate, maybe one day you'll see one. If you want to see a deva, they say, Make your mind peaceful and make an aditana, make a wish, an aspiration to see a deva. Um, probably best not to wish to see Lord of Death because that might be a, a little bit early. So yeah, later on for Lord of Death, but you know, you want to see a, just a regular deva, then you know, there are devas around and maybe you'll see one. Maybe even people who are, you know, die that we know become devas. Maybe we're meditating and they come and they see us meditating and they're very happy. Maybe they come and um, they actually spread their metta to us, help our meditation improve. Maybe that's going on every day and we don't realize. Maybe, maybe that's true. What kind of beings are with one aggregate? There are a certain type of Brahma based on people who meditate uh, Sanya Sata Brahma, they just have one aggregate, the, the, uh, the Rupa, Rupa Kanda, because the mental Kanda is sort of shut down. It's a very specialized kind of jhana that they develop. You know, these old rishis and hermits in India, sometimes they develop this special jhana where they just focus on the body to the point and they embed the mind in, 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 in an object to the point where all the thinking and feeling and memory all shuts down while they're in that state and they become a, a sanyasati, sanyasati brahma for maybe a long time you know, it's a realm that you can be born in and then you come out of that realm maybe come back as a human or another realm four aggregates are the Arupa Brahmas, where they've let go of form. So in that realm, they, they don't have any form. They're just mentality, very refined. States of samadhi give rise to birth in those realms. Again, you have to read the books to get more deeper explanations of that. can't really go 
go into it here, but it's just description of the different realms uh, in the universe uh, uh, based on the, the level of people's minds when they die. One of the suttas says, all five aggregates of all conditioned kinds are burning due to desires, greed, aversion, dislikes and delusions. Does form also include the four elemental planets, galaxies, cosmos in space? Is it all burning? <laughs> uh, it's the nature of the mind that grasps form that is burning, because it has to grasp with desire. Um, and it's the Buddha's very clear picture saying, you know, even though we have pleasure in this life and in this world, there's a lot of pleasure and happiness. If you look at it in the big picture, it's still burning, meaning it's still a source of suffering because pleasure feeds more attachment, more delusion. Pleasure and happiness in the worldly sense does not last and it conditions all kinds of suffering. So we can see that, you know, we get all kinds of pleasant experiences and we want them to last, then they don't last, they change and we get caught into suffering. We long for more pleasure, we get upset when we lose our pleasure. You know, just think of it for yourself. There's something that really brings you a lot of pleasure. Say you have a piece of jewellery or a, an iPhone or whatever it may be that you really find so good and you want it and you like it and it gives you so much happiness using it you like to look at it and polish it and play with it and then someone steals it that's the burning nature of the senses you lose the thing you desire you get angry you get upset it burns you we even say it don't we oh I got burnt they stole my jewellery or my iPhone or whatever it's the mind that just grabs onto things. It gets burnt through the suffering that comes through attachment. Uh, yes, and all the planets in the galaxy, they're all four elements. Earth element, air element. The scientists are out there trying to prove just what elements are there. They love to do this. Is there gas? Is it... Is there water? You know, all of that. It's just really studying the four elements in different versions. All kinds of feelings are burning with desires, dislikes, dislikes, aversion, delusion. What do neutral feelings relate to? As we said the other night, generally for the unmindful state of mind, we, they, they tend to promote dullness or Sometimes you might say a little bit of happiness in the sense that a neutral feeling is better than a painful feeling. So we might attach to it as, oh, this is better than nothing. The mind tends to grasp that way, but generally they condition dullness. All perceptions are burning. Do these include perceptions of pleasure and pain, day and night, wholesome, unwholesome, and duality conditions? Please explain the sphere of non-perception. Empty mind. Mm. Uh, <laughs> well, obviously, perception, the important thing with perception, that candor is it's impermanent. Perceptions come and go, they arise, they pass away, they change. Uh, so even the perceptions of good and bad, in that sense, are still dukkha. They're still impermanent, they're still dukkha, they're not self. They're impermanent conditions. 
Uh, there's still a duality there, but the mind that knows a perception as impermanent is going beyond the duality, going beyond the suffering of a perception. It just knows it as impermanent. And there's this, again, there's this separation, the insight, oh, this is impermanent, this is not self. And so the empty mind is like that. The empty mind sees impermanence, suffering, not self, all the time in all phenomena, perceptions and mental formations. You've gone through all the candors here. I don't really have time to go through it all. But all of these candors are seen in all their detail as an dukkha anatta by the mind of insight, by wisdom. You know, there's the phrase, you know, whether high or low, superior, inferior, coarse, refined, internal, external, so our own, other people's, uh, this body, other people's bodies, physical world around us, feelings, our feelings, other people's feelings, perceptions, thoughts, moods, sense consciousness and so on. Very refined kinds of consciousness, very coarse, suffering, happiness, everything gradually insight is penetrating to see the nature of this universe, the nature of our life in this universe, it's all anicca dukkha And the result, as you've written, yes, the more you contemplate this, it gives rise to dispassion, a sense of uh, letting go and calming these fires, the fires of attachment. You know, the, the, when the mind doesn't grasp at things, it just knows things, but without grasping, it goes quiet, it goes calm, it cools down. So we don't suffer so much. The more insight we have, the quieter, the more happy the mind is in itself. Outside meditation times, this mind enjoys contemplating and understanding the Dhamma. Is that a restless mind? No, I mean, that's probably quite a good thing to do, is contemplate the Dhamma. Listen to Dhamma, contemplate it, and you'll find that leads on to more peace and more insight. Obviously, it can turn to restlessness, and you'll see that. Like people come into a monastery, it's very quiet, not much to do. The longer they stay here, sometimes it's like, you know, meditation is getting a bit boring, and they're not sure what to do. And what do I do next? And they go and get some CDs, and they keep listening to Dhamma. Go through with one teacher, and then they go through another teacher, and then another teacher, and another teacher. You know, a bit like pop songs. Just go from one Dhamma talk to the next because the mind is just craving something to do, something to listen to, some more information, because there's not much else to do. When they finished all the CDs, they go on to the books, go through all the books, finish all the books, go back to the CD, back to square one, <laughs> until mind, the mind gets a bit tired of all that, and then it settles down, this passion arises, and maybe, okay, I don't need so much of that. Now they can contemplate the Dhamma, maybe they've heard enough, seen enough, read enough, that now they can contemplate for themselves. And most of us have been through that. When I was young, I was the same. I used to read all these books. Someone would say, oh, this is a really good Dhamma book. Oh, yeah, I've got to read this. But after a while, it's often it's very same, 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 different ways of talking about the same things. So the mind starts to think, enough of that. Don't need to read so much. But in the beginning, it's very helpful. There was one monk in another monastery who was so obsessed with reading. When he moved monasteries, he, he, they had to 
employ a courier company every time he moved because he had 40 kilograms of books put in boxes and he moved, go with them. A real burden. I hear and have read often about the ultimate truth, but no one ever says what it is. <laughs> Can you please tell us what the ultimate truth is or give us a clue? Uh, the Buddha often talked about what it isn't because that's easier so the ultimate truth is not suffering it's not self it's not that which is born and dies arises and passes away it's not that which is disturbed it's not that which is burning it's cool it's not suffering it's peaceful it's not impure it's pure it's not defiled, there's many ways that the Buddha described it as in the negative sense of what it isn't. It's the unconditioned, the uncreated, the undying or the deathless as we chant. And we, wish, we wish each other, we say, I wish you reach the deathless. You know, everyone goes, what does that mean? But deathless is Nibbana. You know, Nibbana doesn't arise and pass away. It's where the mind sees just the true nature of things as they are and just, just is that way. So it's the hardest thing to describe in words. So the Buddha didn't really try to do that because the nature of language is it still binds you, ties you up to conventional reality, the, the normal way of talking. And so it, you know, or duality or these sort of phrases, it, it limits you when you talk about ultimate truth it's very difficult to talk about it. Conventional truth is easy. You, know, you say, there's me, I have a name, I have a place where I live, I have a background, a history, I think, I feel. That's conventional truth, and we use it all the time. But ultimate truth is just, there is no me, there's just different phenomena arising, passing away every moment. Form, feeling. Uh, memory, thoughts, arising, passing away. There's no self in that and there's no person. The f body is just four elements. There's no being, no person in that. That's ultimate truth. That's something you have to realize, have to know through investigation, through mindfulness and wisdom. It's not really something that you can label. Uh, so we can talk about it generally but the, the Buddha gave us these clues. He says, it's that which is peaceful, that which is the uncreated, the undying, the unborn, uh, the highest happiness. You've all got the T-shirt on. The peaceful mind is the highest happiness. The peaceful mind is the mind that sees or knows, experiences ultimate truth. But it can't explain it. <laughs> That's the trouble. I was told not to concentrate on the phenomena that arises during meditation. Bright lights, blissful sensations, images, etc. And to keep focused on the primary object, the breath. Is this correct? Yes, that's the basic teaching. Um, as your mind quietens down, concentration improves, the state of mind becomes a bit more refined. Um, mindfulness improves 
it's most likely these kind of experiences will arise. Many of you have described you have bright lights, uh, brightness of mind, uh, blissful sensations, rapture, what we call pity, and then sukha. Uh, pity can arise in so many different ways, it's difficult to say it will be exactly like this for you. you know, it can vary, you can have sensations all over your body or in just one part of your body, you can have tingling, you can have feelings of lightness, uh, weightlessness, the body can seem to expand, fill the whole hall, the body can seem to extend upwards into the sky, you can have sort of bright lights and then bright lights extend upwards into the sky, you can have tears, you can have sensation of the body swaying, all of the many, many different sensations and uh, experiences can come up during the meditation. The thing to do is always just come back to the breath, to mindfulness, and just know them as different experiences arising into your consciousness. You're aware of them, but you don't think anything much about them. You just know them for what they are and let go. Otherwise, we tend to grasp at them. We say, oh, this must mean I'm a sotapanna, this must mean I've got jhana, or this is something important or sometimes it's frightening or this is strange and I get frightened or just doubt what is this it's always the mind keeps jumping into just thinking about these things and that will probably mean that you just lose your concentration anyway and the mind withdraws from the, the state of samadhi because of the doubt or the fear or the attachment coming up so better just to keep with the breath and just know whatever comes up. Or if it's an image, you have a really clear image of an angel or a person or a something. Just know it. Just know that. It's just an image arising, passing away. Still impermanent, still not self. Keep going back to the breath and stick with the breath until the breath, your mind and the breath just stay as one. Develop one-pointedness on your object. Even if the breath seems to disappear, just stick with the feeling at that point where it disappears. No, or the breath is gone, but I'm still there. My, the mind is still there. And keep that one-pointed awareness going as long as possible. When you stop meditating in the sitting posture, you get up, keep it going. As you go out and walk, keep that one-pointed awareness going as long as possible. Um, we need to practice that a lot. Is homosexuality breaking the third precept? Could be. It's more, if you have a partner, you have one partner. You have develop a sense of respect and trust in your relationship, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. Learn to be a trusting, loving, patient, kind, respectful partner. Not to have lots of partners, because that tends to break the trust and the respect and so on. So that's the key to the third precept. Try not to uh, exploit your partner sexually. You don't abuse them, harm them uh, in different ways. Whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, it's the same. You have to develop you know, loving kindness for a partner. You have to develop a sense of trust and respect uh, and so on.
then you're not making a lot of suffering for yourself, are you? If you, if you um, have many partners at the same time, you know, you, those partners will not respect you very much and you won't feel too good about yourself if you stop and think about it. And you won't have very trusting, respect, much respect in your relationships if you're constantly moving partners or having many partners at the same time. One is enough. Even one person is quite enough, isn't it? Difficult to be happy even with one person. Dear Ajahn, I felt everything is empty. Look everywhere, it's all empty. Lots of tears came until now I attached to so many things. Please explain. Well, this concept and this experience of emptiness is the mind withdrawing from attachment. Even if only temporarily, you meditate and the mind detaches a little bit from its normal thinking, grasping at thoughts, grasping at the body, grasping at memories, images, perceptions, all the people we can think of, the things of our life. You know, normally we attach to everything because of the lack of insight. But when you calm down in meditation, and there's this stepping back, and you can see the suffering of attachment, the mind inclines to emptiness, to, to the mind state that is free of attachment. And that's a relief. You know, it's like a heavy burden is gone, so you have tears of relief come. It's happiness, it's release, even though it's, there's tears coming. So that's a very, very common experience. Very normal, it's nothing to be worried about. And with that you get some insight. You can see the suffering of attachments. Whatever you attach to will bring you suffering. So how do you live without attachment? You have to develop wisdom. It doesn't mean to say you give up your family or give up your job, give up your wealth, give up everything. It means you have to develop wisdom, insight, as you relate to your family, your job, yourself, the world. So we're practicing, say, we're working with the empty mind. I mean, we do our job of work, but we're not attaching. So it means we're still trying to work hard and do our job of work well, use our intelligence, our energy, our mindfulness to do that job of work well but we're not grasping at it with a sense of self. So if a sense of self comes up, we're seeing that as a source of suffering and letting go. So if you have ego, oh, I did this job really well, um, so good. <laughs> you might attach in that way, and you can see, well, that's a cause of suffering. Somebody else comes along and says, no, you didn't do that job very well, not impressed. You'd get suffering if you're still attached. So you're seeing the sort of the way attachment comes up or even if you do the job badly, you might have to accept, oh, I didn't try very hard, or I didn't really put much effort in, didn't really think about what I was doing, so I was a bit careless or half-hearted. You might have to accept that, or you see, see that you didn't put much effort in, but you accept that without attachment, meaning you know the cause for the job failing or not being so successful. And you can accept it, and it's for these reasons, but you don't create a sense of self there and say, oh, I'm a failure, and then just walk around all day feeling like a failure. 
It's a subtle thing. You can start to do, you can do things, but without the sense of self or ego, always jumping in and grasping at the result and the way things are done. And mindfulness helps us to do that. So just working, you, know, you do your chores in a monastery, you clean up, maybe uh, you do it well and someone praises you, you just know, oh, that's just because I, I put my effort in, so somebody praised, or maybe you put effort in and they criticize you, so you still didn't do it good enough. Well, you know how much effort you put in. If you did put your right effort in and they still criticize you, it's not true, no need to get angry, no need to get attached there, you just know oh, what they're saying is not true. Maybe there's some other reason why they're criticizing me. If I've done the job and I put my effort in, there's nothing to get angry about. Your life is like that, isn't it? Often the things that happen are experiences, pleasant and unpleasant. They create this sense of self-attachment and we suffer. So the more we can just have the empty mind doing what we have to do with mindfulness, the more we're removing our ego from that situation. And sometimes it's very easy, sometimes it's very difficult, obviously, but it's a practice. Last question in Thai. Praparam Sarikata. Kluen. Kluen yai dai yang rai. First question is um, about Buddha relics. Relics from the ashes or the bones of the Buddha. How can these come to move? They appear and they disappear sometimes. How is that possible? Mm, it's a bit like ultimate truth. It's not easy to put into words. You could say miracle. You could say the power of the Dhamma. Most people attribute it to the devas, the angels that look after those relics. They have faith in the Buddha and they protect and look after the relics. And so if they move, it's usually for a reason, to bring them somewhere where they'll be of benefit to people to arouse faith, move them away from somewhere where there's not much faith, maybe. I think the technical term would be telekinesis, and the movement of objects through mind, power of mind. Um, but again, very difficult to explain in words, but it does happen, and there's no doubt about that. We've had examples of it here in Thailand, in other countries. The relics appear, relics disappear. Many times I've given people relics, and the numbers of relics that I've given is, say, nine, and it's increased to ten or eleven. In a few occasions, I've given somebody nine relics, and they've increased to a hundred. And you know, oh, how did that happen? And it's not that they're, you know, secretly doing it or doing, <laughs> trying to trick everybody. You know, these are people who are honest and they, 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 they're as surprised as anyone else. How can it happen? Or usually we say it's the karma. The person maybe has some connection. They have faith. They maybe have made merit with a Buddha or an Arahant over past lives. And so the relics come to them or they increase.
they can change colour. And the relics themselves are invested with the pure energy of the enlightened mind. So over time, that can have an effect. And the relics crystallise, they can change colour, they can grow, they can split and separate and so on. If you're interested, you, know, you can study this, you can ask questions from different teachers and people who have relics and there's books on it and um, you get to realise oh, you know, this does seem to happen. I've even been with monks who had the relics appear in their hand when they wished for them. One time we went to bow at the stupa of um, Lumpo Juan, who's a famous teacher considered to be an arahant, and he has relics there. They have a, a big building, a stupa, a pagoda, and inside they have a shrine where the, his relics are. And we went to a group of monks and we bowed and everyone had a lot of faith, so we bowed for a long time, bowed and meditated. And everyone, the teacher we were with, everyone make a wish, make an aspiration. So for me, I made my aspiration, may I attain Nibbana, like Lumpur Juan. But the monk next to me, his aspiration was, if Lumpur Juan was an arahant, may a relic of his appear right here now at this time. And when he got up, there was a relic right where his forehead was. There's a little pearly relic that had appeared on the floor and the floor was marble and it was immaculately clean. So it wasn't like you know, some bit of dirt had been brought in. He bowed and the relic had appeared right in front of him. So I guess that might indicate, indicate Lumpur Jordan was an error. This is ทราบได้อย่างไรว่าพระธาตุองค์ไหนเป็นของพระพุทธเจ้าหรือของใครใครเป็นของแยกและเราจะทราบได้อย่างไรว่าถูกต้องในการเป็นชนิดเองพระธ
which, uh, you know, again, it's not a, a complete proof, but it's indication there's something pure, some purity or something special about the relics. But one does have to be a little careful because also people sometimes believe anything. So sometimes things that are not relics, people believe are relics. Praputapa meeting my Kundayang Rai Koto Tong Roy Praputapa, see Roy. It's a question about Buddha footprints, what we call Prapudabha, the Buddha footprint. And I think in the scriptures they say there are five genuine ones. In uh, Sri Lanka, in China, in Burma, Thailand, India, I think. That's... They are mentioned somewhere in scriptures, that may be commentaries. But in uh, also in just oral tradition, we have Buddha footprints, um, the Buddha using his psychic powers to imprint on a rock, maybe on top of a mountain or some hillside, um, to arouse faith, not only for the current generation during the Buddha's time, but for future generations. And you see, wherever there's a Buddha's footprint, people will go there. It's a pilgrimage site. So they'll go, and they'll worship, and they'll bow, they'll chant, they'll meditate. So in Sri Lanka, they have uh, uh, Pada, or the Thai say Sumunakut. And you walk up. It's about four hours walk, a little staircase going up a mountain. The mountain is shaped like a chedi, and on top they have a rock with fairly... Uh, footprint, I can't remember how big it is, maybe about 18 inches or so. It's just an imprint on the rock. And uh, most people are convinced that's a genuine footprint of the Buddha. So the Buddha must have gone to that spot and used his psychic powers to make an imprint. Uh, in northern Thailand, the famous one, Lumpur Man, said a very important spot is the four Buddha footprints inside each other. We have a photo of it down in the house. So the biggest one, uh, the smallest one is Gautama the Buddha, the recent Buddha, our Buddha. And then there's three bigger ones. And they say when Maitreya Buddha, the Buddha, the fifth Buddha in the current cycle of Buddhas is five. When Maitreya Buddha comes, his will be the biggest of all. And his Barami is such is built. Barami over so many lifetimes, so many people will be Buddhist in his lifetime, his teaching will be very far-reaching. So they say his Buddha's footprint will be the biggest. We'll have to wait and see, but wherever there's a Buddha's footprint, people will go. There'll be a cause for them to go, make offerings, meditate. Uh, that's probably why he did them. ใครนั่งสมาธิแล้วเห็นร่างตัวเองอยากทราบว่าถ้าจะออกไปท่องเที่ยวจะได้ 
อนที่นั่งสมาธิในห้องนอนและเห็นร่างตัวเองแต่มีคนแก่มากระซิบบอกว่าอย่าออกไปนะไม่กลัวแต่ว่าอันอันตรายไหมถ้าออกไปท่องเที่ยว There's a question about mind and body separating. Say so when you're meditating and they have the experience, your mind comes out, separates from your body. What should we do then? Should is it okay to go travelling with your astral body? Uh, and this meditator once happened, and when the mind came out of the body, she's thinking, or he is thinking, not sure. She, I think, thinking uh, maybe I'll go for a little trip, and then an old lady appeared and said, "Don't do that." A warning. So this meditator said they're not afraid, but they don't know: is it good or bad? Is it dangerous? And the usual advice is, "Don't do it." So obviously, this is why we should listen to elders. So the old lady was obviously a guardian deity, helping you, protecting you from falling into trouble. You know, it's a bit like our children, isn't it? You know, you say, "Don't wander far; you'll get into trouble." Or when they grow older, they're teenagers. You know, "Don't go out far on a Saturday night; you'll end up in trouble." When we get married, you know, we tell our husband, "Don't go far; you'll get into trouble." I think it's the same thing, isn't it? You know, when you're meditating, your job is to meditate, develop mindfulness directed to your own body and mind in the present moment. Let go of your attachment, your greed, your anger, your delusions. Your job is not to go touring around. Ya b e t i l Those who do do that tend to run into trouble. For example, one monk did that. His mind came out of his body, so he started floating off, looking for things. He started meeting all these ghosts, and each ghost he met was successively more fierce, more nasty, more frightening. To the point where the last one he met was like, "Oh, what am I doing here?" It's like meeting, you know, a very violent, aggressive person. You just want to be away from there. So he met this last ghost. And then he thought, "I better go back now." And the ghost followed him back. So it's like, "Oh no, the ghost is following me." Um, and he said it was a very frightening experience. And uh, you know, that's just one example. Many other people have had that sort of experience. You know, if you're not very mindful and you haven't developed strong samadhi and wisdom and insight, then you just don't know what you're messing with. You could be uh, get up to all kinds of trouble. Uh, could even you could they say you could even go a bit loopy, a bit crazy, seeing strange things and you know losing a losing touch with your body and and your basic sort of mindfulness. So it's not something to um, be encouraged. อยากทราบหยุดก่อนพระพุทธองค์ต่อไป
รายละเอียดอยากทราบยุคของพระพุทธองค์พระเจ้าองค์ต่อไปรายละเอียดในเขียนไม่จบ something about um, wanting to know about the next Buddha so in the suttas we have the Buddha mentioned that there would be another Buddha following him in uh, quite a long time from now Maitreya Buddha so it's now sort of legendary everybody is saying I don't have to practice this life I'll just wait for the next Buddha kind of becomes an excuse doesn't it no everything will be all right I'll just wait for the next Buddha I'll enjoy myself now and I'll do my practice later all the teachers say if you think like that very risky because you might miss the next Buddha because you haven't made enough merit or good karma to meet the next Buddha and also you don't know when the next Buddha is coming it's a long time and what will happen between now and the next Buddha coming who knows so it is okay if you really aspire to meet the next Buddha it's okay it's a wholesome aspiration but more practical is see what you can do in this life isn't it develop your barami your dana sila samadhi panya in this life try to free yourself from suffering in this life would be the best and if you haven't achieved it well maybe that will help you to meet the next buddha keep your faith in buddha dhamma sangha hold to that in your mind The Buddha always said, "Never sway from your faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Make that really clear in your mind. And if you do die, well, and you're not yet enlightened, well, that will bring you back to meet with the Buddha's teachings and maybe even the Buddha in a future life." Some people they recollect the next Buddha, Maitreya Buddha. As a way to just arouse their own faith and energy in the practice, so they say by the virtues or the goodness of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva or the Buddha to be, uh, may this give me energy to practice. May I gain samadhi. May I gain insight. Some people they find that inspiring and helpful, so you can use it as a As a way to determine your mind, make it firm. So, a lot of questions. Again, I'll leave it there tonight. And we now have photo session. If you're all feeling uh, photogenic. We can just uh, pay respects to Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and then then we can have the uh, photo. Mm-hmm.